This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. You know, you, you, you preach things and people, I, I, and this may be more of a modern problem. Maybe it maybe it's like transcends all like historical eras, but, but people will like praise and be thankful. But when you expose that scripture, people love to hear it kind of opened up from being surprised by elements of it. But I think, you know, there's that, um, that element, then people come back and say, but here's what I really think, you know? So, um, it's as if, it's as if the, the opinions in, in the Bible or the way things are phrased are kind of up for grabs. Mm-hmm. I, I like it when they're really kind of exciting and fun, but they're, I, I found a lot of the pastoral life. Uh, now that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that people feel convicted and, and come and realize, you know, scriptures um, challenge them or confronted them with something, but there's always this kind of pervasive background that like, that's, that's pretty good. But, um, but there's a, because of pluralism or because there's many denominations, it's like, well, I'm not going to, I don't need that. Um mm-hmm. That's always in the background of the church. There's like, there's somehow I can opt in and out of certain passages and, and parts of scripture. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I, I can remember teaching a vocation course for years at the Cornell students. And and when you just look at the way calling works, you know, so I would say something like, you know, we like to look at our number of characters. What about Ruth loved her calling? You know, like, did she say what was her deep passion in life? Or did she just get, get busy <laughs> with need? Right. And, um, or Nathan, who probably could have just had David assassinated and been king, which would have been the natural thing to do. He's like, no, I'll give it to you. What do you make of that invocation? And so students can like look at that and then they're like, we're really here to make money. You know, we're here. <laughs> they don't it, like that crossover from what these passages do around our humanity and our calling. Like, um, I'm only going to take that so far because that would that would flip my worldview upside down and I can't afford that. So hmm. Yeah, uh the the nature of calling itself. Yeah, what are you passionate about? I I I kind of I don't I don't think I've ever said it this directly, but you know, if you were to pull an Israelite, you know, through a time machine and say, "Hey, what do you what are you passionate about?" They're like, I, "I'm passionate about not starving." <laughs> my my children not dying before the age of five, you know, um, long life in the land, uh, being gathered at my father. Yeah, it's it's a very rudimentary uh, passion. Um, yeah, what's what's wrong with the passion language though? Like, uh, what like what do you think the interference mechanism is when it comes to here's what scripture says? I mean, in some ways, I always think pastoring is like just telling people what is dead obvious from scripture that they could have clearly picked up for themselves um, and then trying to get them to actually put it into practice some way, which is the tricky part. Um, but if somebody's like, well, I'm really passionate about, I hear this, I'm passionate about justice or I'm passionate about clean living or you know, like food wise or whatever. Uh, I guess, when does that become a problem or is it always a problem when people turn to their passion as their guiding influence? Yeah. Yeah. What an interesting question. I mean, I think, I mean, you get this. I was just re-looking at this passage. There's a term used there for Solomon when he builds the temple. 
and it, and it's a it's a phrase reused in Deuteronomy. Uh, John Levinson mm. maybe uh, pointed this out. Oh, why did I set my love on your fathers? Because I just delighted in it. You know that was that's mm. that's it. And that phrase is also used. It's rarely used, but it's used as Solomon. Whatever you wish to do, that he God gives Solomon this real freedom in building the, the temple. And then anybody who like the women who who weave the goat hair, the people who come, whatever you want to do, you can do for this. So it's it. Um, yeah, it would be an error to say there's no passion involved, that God doesn't invite that in. But in those passages, he's directing it, you know, to a mm. certain end, which is the building up of the community, you know, the, or the triennial tithe, whatever you want, you know, bring it and buy mm-hmm. stuff and eat. Well, um, so, so there's this invitation for our passions to be like brought to life, you know, not to just like stamp, tamp everything down. But they are, I think what you can miss in those passages, it's very well directed. Um, and that there are, there are just as many passages where passions and desires are challenged or being, mm. or we find, you know, Jeremiah, the heart is desperately sick. Um, that the, if it's a passion, if it's deep within me, if it's your deep desire in the world, it must be good and pure. Hmm. Um, it's I- ironic that you mentioned Jeremiah there in in the deep deep within you and pure. Um, it kind of connects to that, like the inner the real us is the inner authentic us uh, lie kind of idea. But also, it's Jeremiah in that poem in, in chapter twenty that says, "You know, God, you have deceived me, but you're stronger than me, <laughs> and there is deep within me, uh, shut up in me like a fire." Right. So there's perfect example of he is not only not passionate about this, but he actually hates it. And he, then he says, I wish somebody would have stabbed my mother uh, in her womb so that her my her womb would have been my grave and she would have been forever great. It's like this anti-passion uh, story. But the problem is because it's deep inside of him. It's shut up within him by God and he can't get away from it. Um, so I can imagine also a very fun sermon where you just go like, yeah, so God's going to call you to something you hate and you're just going to have to suck it up and deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the moral of the story? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think of that with Job is um, Mm. he has, you know, the same death prayer, the same Mm. self-cancellation. Once he figures out his vocations to walk through this part of the story, it's almost like Job gets it. Like I can see what's happening here. And I don't want it. And um, mm-hmm. he tries everything in in chapter three to say, um, I, I don't want to walk down this path anymore. Um, but it's his calling, and he has to walk through it for a very long time. And um, yeah, what would you do with? Yeah, it's just another difficult one to say to to align with our merit, modern narrative of um, of deep desire and passion, you know, that he has. I mean, I, I do think there's something to the, you know, to the, um, to mystic, to the, to the theological tradition that Psalm 34, you delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But if you follow that Psalm through, that's Psalm 37, right? Which a wisdom Psalm. If you follow that Psalm through, uh, the people delight themselves. Like the, the Psalm actually teaches you what to delight in. So it's not mm-hmm. a Psalm like, Hey, whatever you want, Drew, if you want to, you know, the, the perfect job and a great car and a big office on the 24. Like, um, that is not at all what the psalm is doing. It's actually training you to delight yourself. The, uh, the, the beloved of the Lord delights in the ways of Yahweh. And mm. so the psalm is saying, it's not that your desires won't be fulfilled. It's that God's going to reshape and hone and 
wring them out and wash them and, and make them good again. And, um, and we have probably a bit of a way of thinking of passion as it's just good in its raw form. Hmm. Um, if a God put it deep in me, it must be okay. So, uh, maybe we should come up with a hyphenated word like submitted passion or, uh, aimed passion, directed yeah. passion. Yeah. Um, ordered and refined. Yeah. So even the things you said, you're, you're freely quoting scripture here as if it's directive. Uh, I, I know what you're referring to, but I also find that in, whether it's in the church or depending on the church, but, um, in most churches that I've been preaching in recently or teaching in, and certainly in my classrooms, students don't know scripture well enough to even kind of have the conversation of what's going on in scripture. So I keep mentioning passages like those passages you just mentioned. And often the reaction is like, nobody wants to say it, but they're thinking like, I don't know what those, I don't know what those passages are. I don't know what they mean. Uh, okay. I'll trust you. But I mean, is there a, is there a sense where if we don't even have the basic knowledge of scripture, persuading people to live under the guidance of scripture is a futile task ultimately? Um, yeah, I mean, I, do, I think there's a sense, you know, I think you and I both experience this, whether in the church or students who will, they are uneasy with scripture or they have, they have reservations about it because of some narrow reading, you mm -hmm. know? And so then, um, and, and the, the only solution to that or that I can think of is they have to know all of the text, mm -hmm. you know, so that um, if you've, if you, yeah, you, the, they, they accept caricatures of the text um, and then get uncomfortable with scripture. And if you, if they have the patience to go back and read in the full context of it, then it puts these things back in perspective, but there's no like shortcut to that. There's no way of saying, um, until you see it in the text, are you going to be persuaded that it's not quite what you thought what it was? Hmm. And, um, yeah, there does seem to be like, um, a desire for a quick access, quick answers to the questions. Um, but until you sit with the text for a long time or in its fullness, yeah, then, then you're not going to understand, um, what these individual sayings mean. Yeah. And if you came from a church background where proof texting or something equivalent to, you know, well, Jesus said this, therefore it just means that if that's your, if that's your practice of interpretation, uh, then anything you see in the text that bothers you is in and of itself a freestanding problem that can be a hurdle to you trusting in God or um, submitting to what the instruction is, I guess, as well. So the, uh, as we'd say, the hermeneutic you bring is the one that's going to guide uh, I, how much you're going to submit to it. So if you were to uh, define, you work with Cornell uh, college students, uh, and then you also are an Anglican priest. And so if you could kind of de devise the perfect plan for how scripture could be forming and shaping somebody's life, what would their... What would that interaction with scripture look like daily, weekly, maybe even annually? You'd, I mean, I know you have some like um, some on-brand answers that you need to give for legal reasons, but <laughs> feel, feel free feel free to freewheel it here as well. Um, yeah, like I th I think you know, I mean, there's a there's an ancient tradition of of like daily office, um, you know, where you read through the whole Bible every year and the Psalms every two or three months. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I like that in, in certain seasons and there's just times I just can't do it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I, I think there's something to having to get through the whole canon, you know, on a regular basis uh, that can be really helpful. But I, I think too, though, I mean, if, when you say like, you know, how would you, what would be the, you know, the best model for that, the more can be done in community where somebody's reading with you. Mm-hmm. So in fact, the, the whole point of like the daily office was meant to be like, here's, here's what you can go read at home before you come back and read in community and hmm. talk about these passages. And I, f- I find we don't have many spaces for reading the text together and reflecting on them. And I think that's one of the only times that you, you read the text really honestly when somebody can kind of, um, but yeah, text read in community and not just, um, not just read aloud, but there does have to be real engagement of it. You know, um, it's interesting in Deuteronomy, I was thinking about this, uh, this language of, um, to talk about when you walk, by the way, and you, when you lie down and when you stand, when you rise, which is all, it's Psalm one language, whichever, mm-hmm. whichever text is borrowing the other. In fact, Patrick Miller, he wrote this essay back in the nineties, um, on the conversation between Psalms and Deuteronomy. And he says, um, one thing is sure that for the Psalms, Torah is Deuteronomy, hmm. which is a pretty strong claim. It is. Because in Deuteronomy, the community is wrestling with the law. You know, Moses set out to explain this text. So it's basically like, hey, let's sit down and read these stories again. Let's talk about these laws and what do they mean for us in society? So I think there is like this community-based um, talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. There's this um, day and night, there's a pretty concerted devotion by the community to read together and teach each other and listen Mm -hmm. to each other. And even even there, Psalm 1 or Deuteronomy 6, um, obviously they, in Iron Age, Israelite does not have a scroll in the house of the Torah <laughs> or even Deuteronomy. Um, they don't have a scroll where they're, uh, re, uh, reading it. So I wonder what, what that meditation on, on Torah or that kind of the discussions, like what, what do you, you know, if you, when you imagine this, what do you think they're actually talking about? What kinds of inner interchanges are going on there? I, yeah. Cause, cause Proverbs picks this up chapter six, seven, you know, it uses that same language of write these things on your, on the tablet of your heart. And, mm-hmm write them on your forehead when um, when maybe they may have only known like stone etchings or maybe some scroll writings and not many people actually wrote. And, um, and so I, th- you know, I mean, one of the interesting things about that writing that um, I don't know who f- first to point this out, but in Deuteronomy, if you look at the way that the text is written, it's written on your, the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So the text should, should be with you when you leave and go. I mean, that's the, hmm. Uh, so when you go to work and when you come home, it should be on your hand. So it should be, you should see it when you work. You should be thinking of it while you work. It should be on your forehead so that your neighbor sees it when they look at you. Hmm. So a lot of metaphorical images of the text that gets into these different social situations that we're in life. When you lie down, when you rise up some morning and evening. Um, and so there is, uh, like it's the, it's this invitation, I think both in Psalms and Deuteronomy, take the text to work take it to a meal and open it up together and see what you see. Hmm. Um, I think is what that writing, the best you could do with that writing metaphor, since these people didn't write, you know, they didn't have a little journal, right. <laughs> a little faith journal. They took notes in when they were reading right. the Bible. Doing the they probably method. just had it. 
Yeah. They just had it memorized, which would, yeah. and I, yeah, I think to write on the heart probably meant memory, you know? Hmm. Yeah. For yeah. Cause the heart people. here is mind, right? So to write it into your mind. Um, yeah. So rehearsing chunks of it, uh, obviously it's going to be part of the ritual life. So they're going to hear parts of it read, um, in various ritual activities, um, that it's part of the conversation. I think, and I, and I guess that's, the, the frustration is we want scripture to be part of the conversation, informative for what it says, not caricatures of what it says. Um, but really, unless people are somehow, you know, that there's a public reading of scripture movement, there's a audio Bible that you can, you know, you can listen to it. And it, my wife does it, listen in a year over the audio Bible uh, on her, her iPhone. Um, but there is something to this kind of like broad and regular and diverse exposure as well. Um, hearing this person's take on it, hearing that person's take on it, and, and hearing various parts. Like I, I love talking to you because you always bring up the parts of Scripture that I don't know as well. I don't spend as much time in, in the Proverbs and the wisdom literature as I probably should. Um, but your fluency in it uh, always helps me to understand the parts that I know even better as well. So um, – I wonder, there's the knowledge problem, and then there's the, um, okay, I know what it says, but I don't like it <laughs> uh, problem, which is, a, a, again, another hard sell. Um, what you, coming out of Deuteronomy, because Deuteronomy, actually, I always quote you every semester on this exact topic. Deuteronomy doesn't say do one thing in order to understand who God is and who Israel is. It seems to think that there's a whole like panoply of activities that feed into it. So what would the what are those activities according to Deuteronomy? And then what might those look like today for a, a modern Western or global Christian? Oh yeah. Yeah, good question. I think how would I answer that? Deuteronomy, what it's asking the community to do. Um I mean, clearly it has this, like this recitation of the, of the Torah in all these different kinds of ways, you know, so this shapes the life, um, that Israel has, then it has, um, I mean, I think it's, it's whether it's picking up on Leviticus and Exodus, you know, it does seem to be modernizing them or advancing them pretty significantly so that, um, and a, a tremendous amount of what the way the community takes this stuff in is through through meals hmm. um you know we we know our friend michael rhodes on on formative mm -hmm. formative feasting is that his work yeah, you know yeah. um so uh how many of our meals are built around um yeah not simply the reading of scripture there's this whole process if i save up enough of my food every year to have a feast and the poor are included and i don't go over my crops too many times so that people can come take from them freely and mm -hmm. trespass on my land without asking. Um, th those kinds of practices reshape your view of property, of time, of, um, yeah, and every three years, come and have a big feast again and give some to the priest uh, because he doesn't have any land with you. So go love the people who bring you the presence of God. Like there's, there's these activities that are um, every three months, every, you know, three, every festival, you know, in Deuteronomy, there's three festival seasons, the community is gathering and sharing food and bringing food and eating food they like over and over and over again hmm. um, as they retell a story. And, and a part of that Deuteronomy is they're remembering where'd all this stuff come from? Mm -hmm. Oh, oh yeah. It's Yahweh's. 
that's maybe central. I was went back to John Levinson again, and because I'm interested in this topic of gratitude and the gift, and Levinson has a whole chapter on this. You know, the the base message of Deuteronomy may be it's all just gratuitous giving of the Creator. Yeah, yeah. Right after the Shema, it it's like, do not think in your heart. Uh, uh, remember, be careful lest you forget in Deuteronomy eight. Deuteronomy eight. Then, yeah, and then nine. It's just like over and over again. Uh, remember where you came from, who brought you from there, and where, especially, especially what seems apropos for us is it's aimed at when you're sitting in these houses that you didn't build and drinking water from cisterns you didn't like. When things are going normal, uh, that's when you should be the most careful uh, to not forget. Um, yeah, it, it strangely, it reminds me of a practice. I went to Berlin, I went to Germany for the very first time this last summer. And I was in Berlin hanging out with an alumna and her husband, and it was great. And uh, Germany has, you know, it has all of these very different things that they do, but it, people drink publicly there a lot, like beer. Beer is very low alcohol, and they like people just wander around and drink. So there, there's glass bottles all over the place. Uh, but instead of putting glass in, like in re recyclables, receptacles, or, you know, recyclable cans, they actually leave them out in specific places, usually around the trash can. They leave them out in kind of an orderly stack, of course. It's, they're Germans. Um, but it's for the poor. So they can take them and they can redeem the, you know, the five cents or whatever fraction of a euro to get so that they can, you know, and any person could go collect those bottles and basically have enough money for a meal for that day. Um and it's just a it's just a common practice there. And I thought, well, how lovely that is. They're you know, even when they finish their beer, they're reminded, oh, there are people who could use this bottle um, to to earn their meal for the night. And it kind of has that gleaning, so you have to do a little work. You put a little sweat equity into it, or something like that. Are there other ways? And uh, and and correct me if you if you don't think that's a good example of something going on in in the Torah. But um, are there? Are there things like that that the church that we just need to nail? Like if you think about the life of the church annually or weekly, like we just need to hit these things and we'll be doing okay. And you don't have to indict yourself as a pastor if you haven't been doing them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. You, I mean, that's a great example. I think that you have there that you know you leave the bottles out because for Deuteronomy, there's this sense: be careful lest you forget. Um, that forgetfulness, I think it's Thomas Merton who says something, and he's probably just borrowing others who said, you know, most people walk around dead hmm. um, in this world. And keeping your your conscience and your your um, your sense of reality, your sense of the world alive and accurate and true is a hmm. lot of work. And Deuteronomy is laboring at that to say you're gonna hmm. not be grateful. And that's the worst sin in Deuteronomy, is, is you're not you're not gonna be grateful. And so um so it, as the book develops and begins to move into these festivals and feasts, it comes back constantly to give thanks to the Lord with other people. It comes back to, um, to notice need and um, to recognize my neighbor, which is such a, a – um, if you show up at the feast, you know, no one will be empty-handed. Um, mm -hmm. The recognition of a neighbor. Uh, I, I was thinking of this the other day. Um, because when I think of Deuteronomy, you know, Alistair, you know, Alistair McIntyre has these, um, what does he has these virtues he calls, um, virtues of dependent, um, creatures. What does he call them? Um, of acknowledged dependence, mm. you know, generosity, hospitality, misericordia, gratitude, humility. 
um, I think that's in his like dependent rational animals. And I thought that's, that's not a bad, that's not a bad uh, summary of, of what's going on in um, hmm. you're suffering with those who are in need. You're being generous to those. Uh, you're being grateful for what's been given to you. You're being humble. Um, you don't lift up your heart. The King in Deuteronomy 17 right, right. is not to ele- elevate his heart, but to come from moments by the, that he may, may not be lifted up above them. There's extraordinary humility in public office. Um, there's this sense. Yeah. Even those who lead are brothers and sisters with one another. And um, I think that sense of the community isn't just the people I live around, but it, it is. Um, I mean, it, and really the best kind of conclusion to that is, is the good Samaritan, you know, mm. Yeah, who is uh, my neighbor? The, compa- yeah. the compassionate Samaritan. He's just walking down the road and he says, hey, look. And all kinds of highly religious people who knew the text walked by and didn't do anything. Right. Um, but this guy looked and said, oh, look, need. Very Deuteronomic. Hmm. You know, I got to get up and get busy because um, that's what we do. And I yeah, I think that's a, a great embodiment of you could, be a, you could be a textual expert. And that's the hard thing about the text. You could be a textual expert and walk right by. Um, a man who'd been beaten hmm. but but there's a spirit somehow the Samaritan embodied um, yeah the text had been yeah had been written on his heart and so for a church to you know like practical you know hmm. we have a pastor listening which we do have pastors who listen to this um uh, what are those things that you would say, here's some idea, you don't want to tell people exactly, you know, here's what we do, therefore there's what everybody should do. But what are some things that churches can do palpably to help as a community, rather than saying, hey, you as individuals need to be more ethical on this front, uh, but actually mm-hmm. trying to form their community, what could the kinds of things would you expect to see in churches? Yeah, no, that, yeah, that's where you were driving at, practical things. I mean, I, you and I know people whose churches are like in a downtown setting, and they host meals. They gather people from, and I've tried to inspire that vision. It's that's really difficult to do. You yeah, have to have the right is. church and the right property. You have to have the right people. That's not really um, an easy thing to do. But I think you know, once you get a church thinking about this and you get it in people's lives, like I think for us in the last couple of years, it's sort of taken off. Mm-hmm. The number of public organizations that can use um, people to be involved in. Um, the, the homeless communities to be involved in one of the things our city started a couple of years ago that kind of died with COVID was the courts started um, involving churches in the, uh, in the family court mm. kind of in drug convictions. Because if, if, if somebody convicted of a, of a, a drug um, conviction they, um, and they're, they're in process or rehab, they can't see their children, which is a huge risk to, to children's development right. and connecting with parents. Right. And, but there's a, there's a complete lack of social workers. And so a number of cities have said, well, churches, like you can be in that presence and, and act as social workers and be trained. And, and they've mm. done that. So, and, and the judge, here's one of the things he said that was the most interesting to me, who like founded this program in Ithaca. He said, they don't know anybody and they feel lost. They feel disconnected. They feel like mm. they're outside of the world mm. and that the whole world's moved right past them. And his main goal wasn't simply that they could see their kids. He said, they just needed to be able to talk to somebody. Right they see on the street every day. Um, Hmm. And I think, you know, churches, if you, our church has had, especially some people in recent years who've, who have caught the vision and found local agencies where they can serve and talk with people Hmm. as fellow human beings. Um, 
that those areas are in every city and you have to just find them. Yeah. You know, whether it's, it's noontime meals or, you know, family courts or visiting the prisons. Um, there's a lot of incredibly, insanely lonely people Yeah, that would love to talk to other people. And I think Deuteronomy, the fact that it's like, I'm an introvert. And I think in Deuteronomy be like, your parents would be saying, get up and go again. we got another feast, <laughs> bring right. the, bring the sheep and the birds. And, um, we're going to go have a big meal again. Um, in community. Yeah, I think even with the homeless, because, you know, in King's College, you've taught here before as well, students are often confronted with um, people who are on the streets begging, and and some some of them, this is the first time in their life, they've actually been confronted with someone who is in their neighborhood that they see every day. And uh, I was struck by a student who I was kind of teaching through this, how would the Torah handle the poor? And um, and she really felt uncomfortable just giving money because she said, you know, this woman on my street corner by my house in Brooklyn, like she actually gets plenty of money. Like, uh, she, she, she doesn't do too bad on the cash front. Um, but she said, but I, that I didn't know what to offer her. And so she was praying about it and she eventually decided I'm just going to get to know her <laughs> and just talk to her like with no agenda other than, you know, becoming her friend and like, how was your day? You know, where's your family? Where are you from? And over about a year, she actually like really got to know this woman well, which also meant when it came time to help her in various ways, she knew exactly how best to help her as well. And I thought, well, that's a great model of like flipping the script, investing the time, giving up, giving up something in order to gain something. Um, I, I thought that was a really good use of uh, the mentality towards I have something that, and they need something. Therefore, I'm just going to give it to them. Michael Rhodes, our, our colleague that you talked about earlier, he says, rather than a soup line where you go and volunteer and give food out to people who need it, the the potluck is the is the ideal when you can um, let everybody bring something, even if it's great or small. Um, so meals, uh, innovative thinking about loneliness and community and belonging. Uh, anything else you find that is successful? And then, and, and on the backside of this, I'm going to ask, how does this help us understand scripture better? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, what else? I mean, I, I, I was just reading something of our friend Michael's work recently, and he, you know, he talks about feasting. But I, what occurs to me, there is, um, in Deuteronomy, there is, and in, in, in the law in general, there's a careful setting aside of goods. Mm. You know, so every seven years you get this land rest or a jubilee year. And so there's a, there's this built-in savings program. Hmm. Um, and that savings isn't just for, you know, my kids to go to college. It's, um, it's for gifting, it's for public celebration. And so they're like, um, what of our goods are we setting aside constantly? Um, you know, not just for my pension. But there, there's going to be, we're not going to need everything that we could today because we're setting it aside for this, um, this gathering occasion is sort of like built in, um, to we're investing in future community events hmm. something like that. Future community savings. Yeah. Yeah. That is completely yeah. foreign to a lot of, <laughs> a lot of us, but I like that. I like that. Uh, practical ideas. Okay. Um, and how do you see participation in these kinds of things and the, these kinds of community oriented events um, or not even events, but just ways of being in the community as shaping our reading of scripture. Yeah, that's a really good one. This is a question I should just turn right back. Cause this is your, 
you know, when you do the practices that scripture give us, uh, then you're able to see the text and see the world in a particular kind of way. Mm. And, um, so that one's more difficult. I would be interested in what you're in your thoughts. I mean, I guess I could say, um, yeah, I mean, like the very simple fact that is if you, if you show up at the festival and you're, or show up in your neighborhood and you begin to care for somebody who's a deed and you take the time to recognize their loneliness and their humanity, uh, you'll come back to scripture and find like on every page, God mm-hmm. is telling the people that he loves the sojourner, the widow, the orphan. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole accusation of the prophets, you know, just like one after the other, um, but you did not love the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, the most vulnerable in their midst. I think that if you go and meet those people and then, um, and they're everywhere in our cities, you know, in our neighborhoods, and then you go back to scripture and you think, oh, like the Lord who gave the land, he delights in these people and their well-being. Mm. And he's telling the priv- the more privileged you are, the more I expect you to notice them um, and how deeply he loves them. For God loves the sojourner, you know, Deuteronomy 10. Mm. Um, and then what he goes on to say, you should love, you should love the person. And I, I think you'd come, we come back to scripture and realize that there's a huge economic system in the background, oh, right. communal yeah. system that God, that God just knows, Hey, like there's going to be a lot of lonely people. There's going to be a lot of people who get kicked out of the economic well-being of society. You know, um, the, the, the myth of merit by, um, you know, Michael Sandel, like mm-hmm. there's people who are just going to lose because they lose. Mm-hmm. And, and if you, if you go do these things, you're going to read scripture and realize, Oh, it built into it is this whole way of God attending to the brokenness, the fragility of the world. Yeah, noticing and attending, and which causes you to want to notice and attend as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, that, and we've been talking about kind of visible poverties and visible problems, but I mean, I, I can think of also if, if you have the gift of a, a strong family, where, you know, healthy family dynamics, strong family being, uh, you know, joining in with families that are struggling or people that have never experienced a healthy family, right? Uh, I think it's one of the greatest things I encourage when we do premarital is to say like, hey, if you can build a healthy family, you know, not free of problems, but a healthy family, you actually can become a model and a counsel for all the other unhealthy families in your family, which, uh, um, or people who, you know, if you want to foster children, they probably will never have seen a healthy family in, in their life, some of them. And so you're bringing them in and actually showing them what this looks like. So, uh, yeah, there's all kinds of ways I could imagine, even if it's not physical poverty or financial poverty, uh, in which uh, Christians contend to the world around them as they come to know it. They have to know what's going on, of course, in their neighborhoods. Um, well, great. Uh, Dr. Ryan O'Dowd, whose work has influenced me even before I started my PhD, he was a deep influence on my work. I thank you so much for your work. On Deuteronomy, and you also have one of the best uh, commentaries on Proverbs I've ever read, as well in the Story of God series. Uh, thank you so much for your wisdom. Yeah, thanks, Drew. God, it's always a pleasure to be around and um, to hear what you're doing and contribute to the work you're building. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian Scripture. For more. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.